like many would-be revolutionaries throughout history, Jesus was executed by the state. The charge against him was fixed to the cross where he was killed. John the eyewitness records it for us in John chapter 19, verses 19 to 20. It's printed there in your book on page 17. Pilate, the Roman governor in charge, also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The sign caused consternation amongst the Jewish religious leaders. They complained that it should say, this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They didn't want anyone to think that Jesus was their king. And Pilate's famous reply was, what I've written, I have written. Jesus wasn't the first would-be king executed by Rome on a cross, and he wouldn't be the last. So was this just the predictable end for a would-be king? Or was it, bizarrely, a strange enthronement? See, Jesus had talked repeatedly about him being lifted up. You can see some of the moments recorded in John 3 and John 12 there on page 17. In John 3, Jesus compares himself to the bronze snake that Moses lifted up on a pole in the desert back in Numbers chapter 21. And in John 12, 32, Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John comments, he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. To be lifted up in the way that Jesus used it had connotations of crucifixion. Yet look at what else Jesus says in those passages. In John 3.14, it's the Son of Man who must be lifted up. Now, we met this Son of Man in Daniel 7, in talk 1. The Son of Man in Daniel's vision is the one who comes to God the Father and receives all power and authority as the king in God's kingdom. And again, in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man and this time talks about being lifted up as the hour of his glorification. Jesus puts together his coming death by crucifixion and his glorification, the lifting up of the Son of Man from Daniel 7. His death is the moment of his glorification, his enthronement. Moreover, according to Jesus, in both these passages, it's his death through being lifted up that will bring life for others. As he says in John 3, 14 and 15, The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We're going to explore that a bit in a moment. If you want to dig down a bit further into Jesus' strange kingly expectation, then have a read through John chapter 10. I've printed out some of the key passages on the next page. Picking up on King David, who started life as a shepherd and whom we talked about in talk one, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but who also, he says, takes his life up again. Jesus' strange kingly expectation was not just that he would die, but that he would rise from the dead. Now, the question of whether or not Jesus really was the king dominated the trial leading up to his crucifixion and execution. 
The very first question that Pilate, the Roman governor, asked Jesus was, are you the king of the Jews? That was clearly the issue. I printed out for you some of Jesus' reply. It's there from John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now, that's a very important bit of information for us as we try to understand God's kingdom. Jesus doesn't deny that he's a king, but he clarifies that his kingdom is not like Caesar's kingdom or any other kingdom of this world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It's not a this-world political entity, even though Jesus and his followers are clearly here in the world. It's a kingdom located somewhere else, though its people be here. And it transcends national, political, cultural boundaries. Now, that has important implications when it comes to thinking through who can belong to God's kingdom and what it looks like to be part of God's kingdom now in the world. And we're going to come to that in talks three and four. But if you read on in John 18, you'll see that Pilate concludes that since Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, Jesus is no threat to the Roman Empire. And he determines to try to set Jesus free. But the issue of Jesus' kingship continues to dominate. When we get to chapter 19, John records the soldiers mocking Jesus' claim to be a king. They dress him in a purple robe, which is the colour of royalty. They crown him albeit with thorns, and then they repeat, hail king of the Jews, while striking him on the face. Three times Pilate asks the Jewish leaders in the crowd whether they want him to release Jesus, their king. And each time their answer is adamant and more and more terrifying. The third interaction is there on your page. It was the preparation day for the Passover and it was about noon, then Pilate told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. God's Old Testament people, the Jews, cry, crucify him. The chief priests of God's people, the one who represent God to his people and the people to God, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Really? No king but Caesar? Whose side are you on? Well, actually, it's pretty clear. Once again, God's kingship has been rejected by his people. And now they're shouting for the execution of the one who came, claiming to be the son of man, the good shepherd, the promised king in God's kingdom. That's how far sin had corrupted the heart of God's people. That it has come to this. I guess that does raise a real question though. Jesus claimed to be God's king. He was executed for it. But how do we know if he was right or not? The Romans executed lots of would-be kings. How do we know if Jesus was the real king or not? Well, the answer is because Jesus didn't stay dead. As I pointed out in the Good Shepherd passages, Jesus expected to be killed 
but he also expected to rise from the dead. His followers didn't ever really understand this until after the fact, when Jesus appeared to them and explained it to them all over again. You can see what Luke records for us in Luke chapter 24 at the bottom of page 19. When Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Jesus is saying, what happened to me? is exactly what the Old Testament said would happen to the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King. The Christ was to die and to rise again on the third day. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead identifies him as that King, that promised Christ. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, there on your page. Jesus was appointed the Son of God, another Old Testament title for the King. He was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you might think Jesus' death shows that he's not God's King. That certainly was the conclusion drawn by Pilate and the soldiers and the Jews at the time. But in Jesus' mind, His death was the strange and necessary enthronement. And his resurrection from the dead showed that despite how strange it seemed, Jesus was right all along. He was the promised king in God's kingdom, the one who would restore God's long-waited-for rule. Well, how does Jesus do that? Point two on page 20, establishing the kingdom. Well, first of all, Jesus announces the kingdom. We've already seen that in Jesus' public activity. He was focused on the kingdom of God. On your page, you can see what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. It's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose announcing this good news gospel of God about the arrival of the kingdom was at the centre of Jesus' mission. But it wasn't just in his preaching and teaching. The arrival of the kingdom was reflected in Jesus' miracles, his deeds of power. All of the New Testament gospel accounts describe how Jesus did amazing miracles. He healed people of sicknesses. He restored people who were oppressed by demonic powers. He even raised the dead. These weren't merely amazing crowd pullers. These were deeds of power. They were pushing back the the little, pushing back the enemies. They were little V victories of the kingdom of God, giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of God would bring when it came in all its fullness. You can see there on your page from Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophets. The spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Notice Jesus has come to set free the oppressed, and yet Jesus has very little to say about the Romans, who had military control over the promised land of Israel. It's in his deeds of power that we get a sense of the real enemies that Jesus is winning victory over. As you see in Luke chapter 11, verse 20 there, Jesus says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' deeds of power aren't the kingdom in its fullness, but they're indicators that the kingdom of God is arriving and they point us to what that kingdom will look like when it comes. So over the page, I have an activity for you. Last night, we saw that the way God establishes his kingdom is by winning victory for his people, establishing justice amongst his people and granting an inheritance to his people. If you look at what Jesus says and does, then you can identify the real enemy that he's fighting, the injustices that he's addressing and the inheritance that he's securing just by looking at his preaching and his deeds of power. So I'm going to give you three minutes to have a look at the list of verses on page 21. See if you can identify the real problems Jesus is addressing. Now, if you're watching with others or in person or online, then have a bit of a chat about it together. Now, some of the verses, it may help if you recognise the context in which Jesus says that. And some verses may imply a negative answer. Well, Jesus says this, which means the kingdom of God is not about this. But see how many you can identify in the next three minutes.
Well, how did you go with that? If you're interested to know the answers, then there'll be a link on the screen at the end of tonight's session where I'll share some of my thoughts on those passages. Announcing the coming kingdom was an important part of Jesus' ministry, but he was more than just a messenger of the coming kingdom. He's the king in that kingdom, and it's his job to establish the kingdom, to bring it into being. So let's move on to page 22. What's the real difference between Jesus and Buddha, or Jesus and Muhammad, or Jesus and Confucius? Well, Jesus didn't just talk about a better path, as some would say Muhammad did. He's not just a prophet. Jesus didn't discover a better path, as some would say Buddha did, or Confucius, or other teachers of wisdom. Jesus established a new reality. As the king in God's kingdom, he established the kingdom. He brought it into being. And he did this not through his teaching and deeds of power, but through the central events of his death, resurrection and ascension, his return to his heavenly father. I've represented those moments on your page with a picture of the cross and the empty tomb and the cloud that hid Jesus from view as he ascended. And here's the key point. Through these three events taken together, Jesus establishes God's kingdom. He wins the victory, establishes justice, and secures the inheritance that brings in God's kingdom. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship between, say, his death and the victory, or between his ascension and the inheritance, all three of his death, resurrection and ascension in combination contribute to the victory, the justice and the inheritance of the kingdom. So let's look first at justice. What does justice require? We could talk for weeks and weeks about what true justice looks like. But it's pretty obvious that at its heart, justice demands some sort of payment or penalty for wrongdoing and equally demands that the innocent be vindicated. Well, the Bible affirms that intuitive sense of what justice requires, but the Bible says it applies not just to our relationships with one another, but with the one true living God. And as we saw last night, we've all at times rejected God's word and his way. We've rejected his kingdom. That rebellion, that sin, demands a just response. God won't sweep human sin under the carpet and ignore it. Then he wouldn't be just. And what a terrible universe it would be if the one true God was himself corrupt. Just ask those who have to live now under corrupt regimes. But the good news is that God is just and is loving, which means he will see justice done even on our sin, but he wants to spare you from paying the price that justice demands. Which is why Jesus came, to see sin condemned in his own death. Have a look there at Romans 8 verse 3. God condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Justice says that the payment for sin is death. 
And that's the astounding good news of Jesus' death. Because of his love, Jesus gave himself as a loving sacrifice in our place, bearing the sin of the world. And so justice was done. Sin has been punished, paid for in Jesus himself. And yet the other part of justice is that the innocent should be vindicated. And that's what we see in Jesus' resurrection. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 tells us that Jesus was vindicated in the Spirit, a reference to his resurrection by the power of the Spirit. Jesus' resurrection from the grave was God the Father's public declaration of Jesus' righteousness, his right standing with God. And so in Jesus' death and resurrection, we see justice established within God's people at the very deepest level. Sin itself faces God's judgment and condemnation and righteousness receives its vindication publicly from God. But the wonder of Jesus' death and resurrection and what makes it truly a good news gospel for the rest of humanity is that Jesus establishes justice not just with respect to himself but for all of us. Have a look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, about you and me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's pull that apart a bit. All have sinned, that we know. But notice verse 24. All are justified by his grace as a gift. That is, we can now be declared righteous, vindicated before God, not on our merits, since sin has destroyed our record there, but rather God declares us right with him by grace, as a gift. That is, an undeserved favour. How can he show you such kindness while still being just? Well, the answer is in the second half of verse 24. It's through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. A, propiti a propitiation is a gift that you give to turn away someone's anger. The gift here is Jesus' death. It's by his blood. The giver is God himself. God puts Jesus forward as a propitiation. He puts Jesus forward to satisfy justice, his own punishment of sin. So Jesus' death is the means by which we are declared righteous in God's sight because our sin was dealt with by him on the cross. Notice how then Paul continues. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus was the moment where God gave sin what it deserved. All sins, past and future, are held by Jesus there on the cross. So that you, so that I, so that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus doesn't have to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. But just as Jesus' death is significant for us, so too is his resurrection. Just as we share in the fruits of his death, 
so we also share in the fruit of his resurrection. God the Father vindicated Jesus as the righteous one, and so too we're vindicated through our sharing in his resurrection. Have a look at Romans 4 verse 25. Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our, trans- our trespasses and raised for our justification. We share in Jesus' vindication from God. His justification through resurrection becomes ours. Well, look at Romans 6 verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We've been buried with Jesus and been raised with him so that we can live a new life now. We share in his vindication and new resurrection life. But Jesus' ascension also plays a part in establishing justice within God's people. When Jesus ascended after his death and resurrection, he poured out his spirit on those who put their faith, their trust in him. The spirit is who changes our hearts so that we want to follow God's word and way. His spirit empowers us to live worshipful image bearers. So Jesus' death purifies us as his people. Jesus' resurrection opens the way of a new life lived towards God. And the spirit whom the ascended Jesus pours out on his people enables us to walk in that righteous way. We've seen a bit then about how Jesus establishes justice amongst his people. What about securing the inheritance? You'll remember from last night that the overwhelming majority of references to inheritance in the Old Testament refer to the promised land. The the exception was the priestly tribe of Levi. They did not have an inheritance in the land. Instead, This is what the Lord God told them from Numbers 18. You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. That's Numbers 18, verse 20. So here's my question for you. What might God mean when he says to these priests, I am your share and your inheritance? What might he mean by that and what might be symbolically significant about it? Have a chat about it together in person or online. See what you can come up with. We'll be back in three minutes.
I wonder how you went with that. The quick among you might have looked up Numbers 18. If you did, you will have noticed verse 24. The Lord says, Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. Part of what it meant for the Lord God to be their inheritance was that they lived off the offerings made to the Lord by the rest of the Israelites. But its significance was much more than that. Instead of having all their hope pinned on the physical land of Israel, the priests and their families were a model to the rest of Israel of where their real hope lay. A relationship with the one true living God was their inheritance. Living that way, the priests and their families were a sign within the nation of where the hearts of God's people were meant to be. And in this way, the Old Testament priests and their families point forward to the real inheritance in the kingdom of God, where Jesus the King is our inheritance. Listen to what John Calvin, the 16th century Protestant reformer said, reflecting on how Jesus benefits you and me. For the promises of God offer Christ, not for us to halt in the appearance and bear knowledge alone, but to enjoy true participation in him. And indeed, I do not see how anyone can trust that he has redemption and righteousness in the cross of Christ and life in his death unless he relies chiefly upon a true participation in Christ himself. For those benefits, redemption, righteousness, life in his death, would not come to us unless Christ first made himself ours. The primary inheritance we have in the kingdom of God is Jesus himself. Time and time again throughout the New Testament, we see the same language that we met when we considered justice in Romans 4 and Romans 6. We're told that through faith, Christians are now in Jesus. We're with him or united with him. The foundation of being in God's kingdom is being united to Jesus the King as an act of God's loving, undeserved grace. And that unity with Jesus happens in the spirit, through faith, through trust. As a result of that unity with Jesus, we enjoy all of Jesus' benefits, all the things that he has secured for us. If you look on the next page, I've listed some out for you. In Romans 6, verses 6 to 11, we're told that our old self was crucified with Jesus. Therefore, just as Jesus' death was a death to sin, so we're now to consider ourselves dead to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We can put sin to death in the power of Jesus' spirit. So his death to sin is our death. Also in Romans 6 verses 4 to 5, we're told that Jesus' life is our life. We share in the new life he lives to God now. And we will share in his physical resurrection life when he returns. Not only that, but Jesus' reign, his rule, is our reign. Ephesians 2 talks about us being seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Even though you and I obviously aren't seated in heaven, that's the status we've already been given because Jesus is our inheritance. 
And 2 Timothy 2 reassures us that if we endure in faith, then when he returns, we will reign with him. Moreover, the Spirit who unites us to Jesus is Jesus' Spirit. Galatians 4 verses 6 and 7 tells us that it's the Spirit of Jesus, the Son of God, who is in our hearts. And that makes us all children of God, and therefore we're marked out as those who will inherit the kingdom. And finally, to make it clear that the physical land of Israel has been left behind in the kingdom of God, Jesus makes clear that for everyone who trusts in him, where he is, is where we will be. So in John 14, Jesus promises he will prepare a place for those who trust in him, in his Father's house. That is what Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension have secured. We inherit Jesus and all of his promises, including that we will be with him forever in his Father's coming kingdom. So we've thought about justice. We've thought about how Jesus secures our inheritance by giving himself to us. What about victory? How does Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension win the victory over the real enemies? As we've already seen in Romans 6, Jesus' death freed us from slavery to sin. Galatians 5, 24 to 25, tells us that our flesh with its passions and desires was crucified with Jesus. Now we live in the new life of the Spirit, poured out at Jesus' ascension. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of death. Hebrews 2 tells us that by his death, Jesus defeated the devil who wields the power of death. Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus triumphed over the evil powers and authorities in the spiritual realms at the cross. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that since his ascension, Jesus is now reigning, ruling at his Father's right hand and will continue to reign until all things have been subdued under his rule, when he will hand back the kingdom complete to his Father. So that starts to give you a sense of how Jesus has established God's kingdom. He's seen justice done. He's given himself as our inheritance. And he's won the victory that we desperately needed against the powers that are bent on our destruction. This is indeed God's good news gospel for the world. God's kingdom has drawn near because Jesus the King has established it in his death, resurrection and ascension. And yet, even though Jesus has established God's kingdom, in our experience, the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness. Following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, if now was the time that the kingdom would be restored to Israel. Jesus' answer was, that's not really for you to know, but you get on and tell the world about me. And when you get to the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, the apostles are still talking about Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom. It's still not arrived in its fullness. God's kingdom has been established, but not yet arrived in its fullness. So you can see on the diagram at the bottom of page 25, we live in this overlap between two ages, the age of the reign of sin and death, and you can add that to your diagram if you like, and the age of the reign of Jesus the King. 
Jesus reigns as king now. His kingdom is growing now. But the old age of sin and death lingers on. Despite Jesus winning the victory over sin and death in his death and resurrection, sin and death won't finally be destroyed until Jesus returns and his kingdom comes in all its fullness. And what a great day that will be when everything is finally put to right. And in the next two talks, we'll look at the implications of living in this overlap of the ages where the kingdom of God has begun but not yet arrived in its fullness. But notice this as we finish tonight. The kingdom of God is not somewhere off distant in the future. It began with Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. The decisive victory has been won, justice has been established and the inheritance has been granted. And so you can experience the reality, the first taste of that kingdom now. Remember Jesus' announcement when he began his public teaching? The time has arrived. The kingdom of God is near. And then he said, repent and believe the good news gospel. By putting your trust in Jesus the King and turning from your rebellion against God's word and way, you are united to Jesus the King. Then what is his becomes yours, even though you don't deserve it and never will. His death is yours. His life is yours. His spirit is yours. His reign is yours. And that starts now, even though there is much, much more to come when he returns. Maybe you made that decision to repent and believe some time ago. Well, give thanks to God that by his grace, you are part of his growing kingdom and that Jesus has won the victory for you over sin and death and the flesh and the devil. Give thanks to him. Live out that victory in your life in the power of his spirit in whom you share. Rejoice in the inheritance that he secured for you. But maybe repent and believe is not something you've yet done. Well, Jesus' call is to you too. His promise is to you. He wants you to experience forgiveness of your sins. He wants you to be free from guilt and shame. He wants to purify you, give you a fresh start empowered by his spirit, see you there in the kingdom of God in all its fullness. He wants to adopt you into his family, make you a child and an heir who will inherit the kingdom of God in its fullness. All it takes is to turn back to God and to put your trust each day in Jesus, your King. That's repentance and faith. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. If you want to start trusting Jesus, the King, then pray this simple prayer after me. I'll leave a pause after each phrase so you can echo it to God in your own mind. He hears. So let's pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus is the King. 
forgive me for my sins. Give me a fresh start. Help me to trust you each day while I wait for Jesus' return. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, then know that your sins have been forgiven because Jesus is now yours. Welcome to the kingdom of God. There are two things I'd love for you to do. First, tell someone that you decided to become a Christian today. It might be a friend, a family member, a Christian that you know. Just tell someone. We want to rejoice with you. Second, your sisters and brothers in the EU are really keen to help you to get to know Jesus better and to learn what it means to follow him. In the daily Ancon email, there's an I became a Christian today link that I'd love you to click. It'll let someone in your faculty in the EU know that you prayed the prayer and they will get in contact with you to help you get started in your new life following Jesus while we wait for his return. In the next talk, we're going to look at what it means then to live in the now but not yetness of the kingdom of God. Look forward to seeing you then.